Well, so it's interesting because, you know, I think in the classrooms uh, or in popular discourse, the the implication is actually quite the opposite, that science is sl- slowly, you know, proving God away. But you're saying, you're saying actually from, you know, your experience and uh, a lot of the, the evidence that's out there, uh, you, you come to a very different conclusion. That, that's absolutely correct. And uh, what really did it for me, ironically, when I nearly walked out of the Christian faith, uh, say 18 years ago, um, I began talking to atheists and hanging out with them, hanging out with biologists uh, in particular and chemists. And I asked them, uh, what do you think of this? And they got very uncomfortable. And I'd say, what, what do you think about life being a miracle? That, that seems like to be a miracle for me. Uh, to me. And I began to study their literature. And over and over again, even the atheist biologists w- would acknowledge how uh, improbable it is that something as uh, intricate as life could emerge. And it's actually now, um, just even in like the last 10 years, a very famous evolutionary biologist came out and said, well, the problem is so bad now, we have to start, uh, his name is Eugene Kuhn, and the problem of the origin of life is so bad now that we have to seriously start entertaining that maybe there are multiple universes that we can't see. And we just happen to be in the one universe where a miracle happened. Yeah. Because the odds of all this forming is just so infinitesimal. It, uh, uh, we can't resolve it by just saying uh, it, it happened in our observable universe. We have to postulate the existence of an infinite number of universes of which ours is just one of them. And we just uh, happen to be in the universe where we're alive to observe it. And so it's not a miracle. So when I began to see solutions like that, where they're appealing to things that are really untestable, they're unprovable, they're undescribable, uh, they're infinite in dimension, they're everything except um, a personal God. I said, well, okay, now the evidence is telling me there is a miracle. It's up to the individual to decide whether he's going to trust in multiple universes as an answer to the miracle of life or to the Christian or to some sort of deity. Now, it's, it, it's actually a separate question uh, whether the God that created life is the Christian God or the God is some other uh, religion. And that's actually also part of some of the research that uh, Dr. Sanford's team uh, is working on. This came from a conversation I had with a friend, Sal Cordova. We were introduced to Sal along with another friend, Chad Palmer, in our last episode. Sal is a member of McLean Bible Church in Virginia, and he serves in their apologetics ministry. Sal has a background in molecular biophysics, and he's done research with a renowned geneticist named John Sanford. He's a self-described skeptic who came to Jesus when he began to see the design and creation and the creator behind it. And, since my own relationship with science soured about 20 years ago as an undergrad science major, yeah, that was a mistake, I needed Sal to help me interact with the theory of evolution and what Christians should do with these ideas that are so tightly woven into our scientific conversations and that have such a contentious relationship with our Christian faith. And I learned a lot. (music) 
Welcome to the eighth episode of Breadcrumbs, our youth ministry podcast at Bread of Life Church. I'm Jason Lowe, the youth minister at Bread of Life. This episode is part two of two, exploring the relationship between science and faith. In part one, our concern was epistemology, the study of knowledge, and in particular, justified knowledge. In this second episode, we'll look at evolution, and we'll look it squarely in the eyes and try to show that what many assume has been scientifically proven is in fact not proven at all. And I learned that probably the toughest question facing evolutionary biology is the origin of life. Where did life come from? It's interesting what's happened is some of the creationists I have met, or people that have become Christians, were actually atheistic scientists. And as they studied the evidence, the worldview changed because they realized the worldview is incompatible with the facts that God has laid out, just as it says in Romans 1.20. So one thing that we, uh, people used to uh, believe that um, life could just spontaneously emerge, that uh, insects and animals will just kind of, um, uh, like if you had a, a piece of dead meat, um, an insect would actually uh, come to life from that piece of dead meat. And um, uh, some experiments by uh, Francisco Reddy showed that that was, that was false, that uh, uh, the flies had to come and lay their eggs. Mm. And then in uh, the 1850s and 60s, uh, there was the development of cell theory, which said cells only uh, by uh, Virchow, that uh, cells come only from pre-existing cells. And then Pasteur showed that uh, life only comes from other life. And we didn't really understand the basis of that. But at the time, scientists uh, like Haeckel were saying, well, uh, without spontaneous generation, we have only the only recourses to appeal to supernatural creation. So he actually had experimental evidence that he wanted to ignore because mm-hmm. he knew the implication that has not changed. It's actually gotten worse because now we understand the mechanistic basis. Um, and this is actually what gets technical. So you asked about how to deal with science and people struggling with faith. If there's a biology student, I wouldn't ever try to convert them in one conversation. Although that's, it's been my experience, some have been converted in one conversation. And I praise God for that. But I would encourage him to just learn the details of biology, because some of these people that actually became converted uh, actually studied the mechanics in terms of the chemistry. Where they get diluted is to to read things in their textbooks uh, by evolutionary biologists, which are just mythological assertions. They're not based at all in basic chemistry or physics. In but fact, it, it conflicts. What are some examples of of, kind of those assertions? Okay. Um, that, uh, that, that there was an abiogenesis event and that uh, um, chemicals mixed together and then created life. But we know that if you, if you, you could, I've encouraged students to do this. I said, just, just take, you can buy all these amino acids and just put them in a test tube, yeah. mix some water. Does, does anything that you've studied in biochemistry say that uh, anything even resembling life will emerge, or even a protein. It won't even do what they call uh, polymerization because uh, in, a, in, a, in a water environment, um, uh, amino acids don't link up together to make uh, even uh, the resemblance of a protein. They'll actually break apart with what they call a hydrolysis reaction. 
And I'm sorry to be technical, but this is, if, uh, what I try to encourage students is, don't run away from science. It's a gift from God. What you should do is, is to be skeptical. Be skeptical if, if what you're taught in your textbook or by your professor doesn't agree with what other sciences have taught you, like chemistry and physics and probability and mathematics. And uh, again, it's one of these things where God said, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to search it out. If they're willing to see the truth, you might have to do some digging. A lot of my creationist friends actually go out there and uh, uh, they're going out in deserts and digging things or conducting experiments. They're going on year-long searches to find things. So um, you, you asked me to give an example. I could only just kind of scratch the surface because I'm trying to put it in the language for high school students. Yeah. But the best arguments would be like for the sophomore uh, in, in a biology or physics or chemistry discipline. Um, uh, th there is one thing called the law of large numbers. And I actually asked this to an evolutionary biologist. He, he got very uncomfortable. Uh, his name was Nick Matsky, and he was a big evolutionary promoter. And uh, he was involved in the famous uh, court case, uh, Dover, uh, Kitz Miller versus Dover. And I, I, his name was Nick Matsky. I said, uh, Nick, if you came across the table and it was full of 500 fair coins, so just 500 fair coins and they're all heads, would you think chance was an explanation for that? He couldn't answer the question because he knew where I was going to nail him on that. Yeah. I said, Nick, this is, it's really funny. I posed that question to a six-year-old. <laughs> the six-year-old could answer it. A PhD in biology could because he, he knew where I was going to that. I said, one of the problems with life, all the amino acids are left-handed. Um, and then also the DNAs and sugars are right-handed. There's this homochirality. The natural tendency of chemicals uh, left on their own is to, to not become living. They, they become more dead, if you could say that. I mean, if you just see a creature die, he doesn't spontaneously resemble. There's reassemble. There is a natural direction to where um, the chemical processes go. And that's why life doesn't spontaneously emerge. And the problem of homochirality in amino acids is like that problem of all these coins that you would find all in the head's configuration. And that evolutionary biologist refused to answer the question because he knew I was going to nail him on that because yeah. those are the probabilities that are astronomical. They're plain as day for someone that studies it. So actually when I try to teach uh, students and they're having questions about science, I said, learn more real science. Don't learn evolutionary biology. This is the one thing the one takeaway I would give them is a famous evolutionary biologist himself said, in, uh, and I'm quoting Dr. Jerry Coyne, he said, in science's pecking order, in science's pecking order, evolutionary biology lurks somewhere near the bottom, far closer to the pseudoscience of phrenology than to physics, end quote. I studied physics uh, before studying biology, and I could say evolutionary biology doesn't qualify as science. They don't have any experiments to prove their point. Same for the theory of abiogenesis. Every experiment we have run shows that life does not arise from non-life. Mm. It's just like expecting a, a famous atheist physicist, by the way, Fred Hoyle said, this is like expecting a tornado to pass through a junkyard and assemble a 747. Mm -hmm. The problem with life is we have all these intricate parts um, that are nano-engineered. Uh, maybe one way to visualize this, our first computers were 
could fill out a room and they only had like a few thousand bytes of memory and they're right. gigantic, weighed multi-tons. Yeah. My, my smartphone here has millions, maybe hundreds of millions of times more memory mm-hmm. in it than those first computers. That yeah. means advanced technology means when you can make something smaller to do computation, that's more advanced technology. The cell has more computational power in it uh, to make something like a human brain. Mm-hmm. Human brain has more connections than all the routers and connections in the World Wide Web. Yeah. It's just incredible. That means there's more technology in the human cell than all of our uh, collective capabilities. And that could not have arisen by simple chemical reactions. There had to be an engineer to put this together. Yeah, that's an avalanche of a problem. I'm sorry? That's an avalanche of a problem if, if we don't have an intelligent mind behind it. Yes, yes. And so what's ended up happening, it's been really funny, quietly as I've gone to, uh, as I've met other colleagues, um, they'll quietly say, you know, I believe in intelligent design. And, and one time I was in class at the NIH graduate school, the FA, they call the FAES graduate school. We're studying biochemistry. And the professor is describing this beautiful uh, system in biology. He said, you know, this is so well designed. And then he said, wait, I'm not supposed to say that. Uh, this all evolved. The whole class erupted in laughter. It's like everyone could see it. It's just yeah. plain as day. Yeah. But no one can actually say it. No one can publish papers on it. Right, right. And not be persecuted. I, I mean, uh, I for the students, and I'm glad you're doing this because I, 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 I want to communicate to them that if they persevere, they'll see the truth. Yeah. Yeah, it, it sounds to me like both of you are saying what's at stake here is, or what's going on here is a lot more uh, spiritual than, than, you know, than the, the secular atheist side would, would like to, it was willing to admit, you know, that, that it's a lot about, uh, it's a lot about faith and uh, just what we're willing to believe than it is about evidence. Sal also pointed me toward a video of a lecture by synthetic organic chemist James Tour. He's a professor at Rice University. I found it to be a really powerful example of how many gaps exist in modern science's ability to explain how life began, that it leaves you really wondering why so much evidence arguing against a physicalist or materialist worldview is ignored by so many smart scientists. The more I listened, the more I began to realize that the conflict between science and faith, and the theory of evolution in particular, are a small part of a larger spiritual battle. The commitment to the theory of evolution isn't merely an objective synthesis of facts, you know, putting pieces of a puzzle together until you've got a clear picture. It is, for many, also a faithful commitment to a worldview that keeps God out of the picture. It even requires, as Sal mentioned, the faith to stare astronomical improbabilities in the eye and propose theories that really have no scientific basis. I think this is an important point to grasp because Christians are often painted as wishful thinkers whose objectivity is compromised because their only interest is in supporting their faith, which means that they need not be taken seriously and that they should be excluded from serious scientific activity. But I think in actuality, the playing field is much more level than our accusers would like us to think. They also are concerned with defending their worldview, 
that has no place for a creator, even if he really exists. And as we noted last episode, the existence of God is actually not even a question that science can answer for us. So what do we do? What can you do? Here are a few takeaways uh, from our discussion about science, and in particular about evolution. First, I, I would encourage you to investigate and learn about science. Don't be afraid of it. Learn to identify assertions that are made in textbooks or in classrooms and ask what evidence is there that supports these assertions. Now, it may be supported, but it may not be supported, and it's important for us to find that out. Don't be intimidated. I think second, realize that the questions facing evolutionary biology are significant, and we presently have no good answers, or evolutionary biologists presently have no good answers, and it just seems like no one wants to admit it. Third, realize that the conversation about evolution in Christianity isn't simply a matter of facts versus faith. That's often the way that it's painted. It really is the outworking of a spiritual battle to deny or acknowledge the God who created the world that we study. And with so much at stake, the battle will be intense. So don't be surprised by that. And then finally, as usual, check out our resources, uh, and especially the link that, that we'll have of the, the lecture by James Tour. Thanks for joining uh, this eighth episode of Breadcrumbs, and we will see you next month, uh, November, when we uh, tackle a new topic, uh, the topic of mental health.